0: Well, good morning. Helping, serving, teaching God's word. Just finished up my MDiv, and it's just a privilege to be able to share what I've been learning, and as well as help out uh, at the church. So, um, well, our series right now is "Conflicted: Pursuing Peace in a Cancel Culture." Pursuing peace in a cancel culture. And some of you guys, this service is a little older than the pr- first service, so you guys know it wasn't always this way. 20, 40 years ago, when somebody did something wrong in public, they messed up, we would say, we kind of believed people were basically good, and the problem was a lack of education. So we actually need to like, teach them what, they, what, what was wrong, and they need to learn, and we were so optimistic. Everyone can change, they just need to know better. 20, 20 40 years later, we realized education isn't enough. Now we're at a point in a cancel culture where we're saying, um, hey, there's good people and bad people, and the categories never change. They're only revealed. And so somebody says something, and we say, I knew they were a bad person. And we begin to cut them out of our lives, right? I asked my kids, do you know what cancel culture is? And they said no, so therefore I went to dictionary.com for you. You're welcome. The phenomenon or practice of publicly rejecting boycotting or ending support for particular people or groups because of their socially or morally unacceptable views or actions. Uh, Pippa Norris at Harvard said the controversies are, uh, on the good side, cancel culture allows people to hold others accountable where our society has no way to hold them accountable. And so that's on the positive side. On the negative side, it can amount to a mob mentality of just, canceling viewpoints that we don't happen to agree with, whether there's any argumentation about whether they're right or wrong or what their merits are. Does that make sense? Um, And the reality is cancel culture isn't just outside of us. Now that we've moved to a a more moral therapeutic culture, cancel culture is deep inside of us because now we see problems in our family and friends. We say, man, these people are toxic. I need to cut them out of my life. Th- these people at work, I-, I don't need to talk to them anymore because they're making my blood pressure rise, <laughs> you know. These-, these kids of mine, when they leave home, that'll probably be it. And-, and they might be thinking the same way, right? The cancel culture is deep. <laughs> I'm joking about that. The stakes are far higher in the church because God has called us from many different backgrounds, many different parts of society to live as his body, And he's made a way for us to live as one. And if we're saying, I don't wanna be around anybody bad, guess what, it's not gonna work. The stakes are far higher. This paradigm for conflict resolution prevents any meaningful uh, relationships. Because the minute we find something bad about somebody, it's done. What does that mean for us? We have to hide anything bad about ourselves. And so we're not even interacting with people as ourselves we're interacting with a fake version of ourselves that probably won't get in trouble. And they're doing the same. And it's eroding true community. What would Jesus say to our culture that gets so upset when he says something judgmental, but we are ready to judge others? A culture that's quick to cancel and slow to forgive. Jesus offers a radically different solution. Let me pray and we're going to look at Matthew 18, 1 through 9. God, I pray you would open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Lord, we got to be honest with you. We see problems in our world, but as we're honest, those same problems are in our heart, Lord. And we are never going to have the kind of Christian community, the radical community you're calling us to, if we try to build your kingdom in the world's way. If we're not formed by you, Lord, Help us admit our own sin, Lord, and deal with it the way you want us to. Help us deal with others the way you want us to. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Matthew 18, 1 through 9. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. This is the word of the Lord. This whole section of the discourse, Jesus' five discourses in Matthew, this fourth one is about how do we live in the kingdom in the midst of sin and brokenness? How do we deal with conflict? How do we deal with the challenges of being the greatest? And it's all occasioned by the disciples having a big disagreement we see in Mark 9 about who is the greatest. Why are these guys so petty? Because they are no different than us. Almost all of us were working in environments where there's a pecking order, and there's a hierarchy, and some of you guys are getting up in your fields where there's only a few options left to where you could get promoted into, and there are a number of people trying to get into them, and your life will change dramatically if you make that next jump, right? We all are concerned about how we, level, how we measure up, and the disciples are concerned because God had promised them, I'm going to send a king who's going to sit on the throne of David forever. And they're thinking, this is it. And they're right. And they're thinking, okay, the king doesn't actually rule on his own. He rules through others. Which one are we going to be? And James and John cheated, and they sent their mom to talk to Jesus, which I think is unfair. And everybody else did too, and they're getting upset. And they're saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And that introduces our whole passage here. And we're going to see that Christians need to help build up and not hinder the faith of others. And the way we do this is by dealing with our own sin radically. Dealing with our own sin radically. First point is this. Don't lead others into sin. Look at verse 7. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it's necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. In this fallen world, there will always be temptation to sin. The disciples were a little confused because you know when you're like, you ever see the mountains and you just see it looks like a line of mountains, okay? And then you get closer and you realize, oh, these two mountains are actually 10 miles apart, okay? That's what the disciples were doing with the coming of Christ. They said, hey, there's gonna be a day of the Lord. The Messiah is gonna come. He's gonna set everything right. And we wanna be the ones uh, without getting all the glory, with the high place, But as as Jesus came, they realized he's actually coming twice. The first time he came in humility to deal with our sin. And the second time he's going to come as a judge and make everything right and reign forever. Okay? And so while we're living in this period between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, we're living in an age where God's kingdom is breaking in, but the world's still fallen. Okay? And in this fallen world, in this age, there will always be temptation to sin there will always be temptation, but God's not neutral about it. He says, woe. Woe. Woe is the opposite of a blessing. When we look at Matthew 5 and the Sermon on the Mountain, Jesus is saying, what is the blessed life in this kingdom? This is the opposite, and he's saying, what leads to cursing? What is going to make this kingdom life not work? And he says, woe to the world for temptations to sin, and woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. What's Jesus saying? What pain and judgment await those who tempt others to sin? Pain and judgment. Jesus is not okay with the temptation to sin, but it is a necessary part of our life before he comes again. Um, Growing up, my mom pulled out all the stops for the holidays. Incredible. Um, She had a different set of dishes for every occasion And she got them in the true Midwestern way, where it's like, I paid nothing for these, and they're worth this much, you know, how we do it in the Midwest. Um, She had Easter dishes, Christmas dishes, Thanksgiving dishes. Um, She just had these, like, insane collection of cabbage plates. I don't know what those were for, but they were awesome. Um, We, our big tradition in Christmas, we had a barfing goose. Maybe I shouldn't have said it that way. But that was our, like, cream pitcher was a goose. we We were just very uncouth and called it the barfing goose. But, um... It was a little stressful because you walk in and it looks like a magazine photo shoot here, but somebody's going to be the first to spill. Somebody's going to do it. It was frequently me. And my stepdad had this awesome saying. He would say, um, hey, somebody had to do it. Somebody had to do it. And you felt better. Like, yeah, somebody did have to do it. Jesus is saying the exact opposite here. When it comes to temptation to sin, somebody had to do it and it matters. It's not somebody had to do it, so it doesn't matter. Somebody has to do it, and it matters a lot. It better not be you. This corrects two wrong views of sin and temptation. First is it's going to correct against idealism. Some of you guys are thinking, I'm going to start walking with God and, and not sinning as soon as I stop being tempted, and that's not happening in this age. And some of you guys on the idealistic side are so discouraged because you're tempted and you feel guilty. But we got to remember Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, yet he never sinned, Hebrews 4 tells us. So temptation in and of itself is not a sin. It's not a sin, right? And it's always going to be with us in this age. So it corrects against idealism, thinking temptation's going away. But it also corrects against apathy, just not caring. Temptation's everywhere, it's no big deal, it's normal. It's just my personality type. I'm just an express, I speak the truth. I'm a truth teller. Um, I'm not worse than those guys. We, we rationalize our sin, and that's not okay either, because Jesus says, woe to the one through whom it comes. You're saying, Dan, I'm not tempting anybody. My sin only affects me. People don't even know about this. Could it be your apathy and your struggle against sin is actually affecting everyone around you? Could it be that people in your life, your spouse, your kids, your small group members are tempted to be lukewarm in their faith because you are? Could it be that that people in your life are tempted to anger because you are? Could it be that they're prone to lust because you are? We can never get comfortable with our sin and think it's no big deal, it's just how it is, Because Jesus says, woe to the one through whom temptation comes. So we see, we must not lead anyone into sin. What do we do? we got to lead by removing our own sin. I love this about Jesus. No one else is going to tell you this. You're walking into a conflict, you're walking into a problem, and he says, all right, let's work on you first. That's that's exactly what he does. Look at verses 8 through 9. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. You're saying, hold on. It seems like Jesus is saying, I can cut out enough sin to be worthy of eternal life. And if I don't, I'm going to be thrown into the eternal fire. Right? Dan, sounds like he's saying I can be good enough to get to heaven here or bad enough to be out. And that is not what this verse is saying whatsoever. That can't be the case. Look back at verse 18, uh, 3. When this whole mess started, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never inherit the kingdom of heaven. We don't inherit the kingdom of God because we're great. We inherit it because we humble ourselves. So he's not saying we can be good enough to get to heaven. What's he saying? Do whatever it takes. Whatever it costs you. However much it hurts. However foolish you're going to look. Ruthlessly eliminate your sin. Just ruthlessly eliminate it. We live in an awesome neighborhood in Royal Oak. Love it. Like our house, it's on 12 miles, so we'd love to move. But our neighbors are so great, we can't do it. Um, People just love their families, uh, care about their kids so much. One of the moms in our neighborhood actually had a double mastectomy. And she didn't even have cancer yet. Her genetic testing showed that she had a very high likelihood of getting cancer, and she said, I'm not missing a minute with my husband and with my kids because of cancer. What if we approached sin the way we approach cancer? Man, we are terrified of cancer. It's something we cannot control, so we want to catch it early, and we want to get it out. Get it out. How would our relationships in the church, in our families, be if we rooted out sin in our lives? as ruthlessly as we want to eliminate cancer. How would it be different? How do we remove our own sin? Jesus talks about cutting off our hands and feet and plucking out our eyes if they cause us to sin. Our hands and feet are the ways we act on sin. That's how we actually get ourselves in trouble. Our eyes are the ways that we're tempted to sin. Okay, So if anything in our life is being used to act upon sin, cut it out. If anything in our life is tempting us to want to sin, to tempt us, we got to cut it out. Maybe it's your cell phone, laptop, podcast you're listening to, the type of news you're listening to that's causing you to despise other people and look down on them. Maybe it's a lack of sleep that's causing you to just lose control of your emotions. And When you say, man, I need to cut out this lack of sleep. Maybe it's who we follow on social media is causing us to not be satisfied with the life God has for us. I know for me, I was following this family in Montana. I think they were, they were somewhere better than here. And they're living in the mountains. And this mom's just throwing her kid in a sled, skiing out in the backcountry, overnight camp, winter camping with her kids. And I, and I was just find myself being like, God, why do you have me here? What am I doing here? I had to unfollow. Because it was tempting me to not be content with the life that God's given me, that he's called me to. Some of you guys, it's a life of like, look at this family. They're all good looking and they're all going to great schools. What happened to us? How come their kids are turning out so great and, and we're just struggling over here? Maybe it's like the perfect mom of like running a business, making so much money. Every meal's perfect and we need to cut it out. We need to be really careful with what we're letting into our hearts because it's shaping our desires and it, it could be tempting us tempting us to lust, tempting us to be dissatisfied, tempting us to sin. The time we're actually going to see leaps and bounds of growth in our life is not when we start trying to battle sin, but when we start trying to eliminate temptation. Eliminate temptation. I I told these guys, I have like a rat diet. Like I will eat whatever food we have and I will eat as much of it as is there and I won't even feel remotely sick. I, I could eat my daughter's birthday cake and I'll feel like, where's the next one? I will never be able to stand up under the temptation of eating foods that are going to cause me to have a heart attack in my 50s, like what happened to my dad. I will never be able to resist that. But I can keep an Oreo out of my house. I can keep an Oreo out of my house, but once it's in there, game over. <laughs> game over. When I, when I counsel young couples and they're falling into sin... Well, we were at her house, and her parents weren't home. We went in the basement. We were like, watch- just stop. The minute you went in the basement, the minute it was done. I was on my phone late at night. I was scrolling. Get, it, get rid of the temptation. I was watching this news. It was making me so mad. Stop listening to it. I was talking to these other wives. We were all talking bad about our husbands, and <laughs> stop it. You have to just walk away. we got to cut it out. we got to cut out the temptation. How do we actually do that, though? Look at the clues in this chapter. Look at at verse 18.3. He says, unless you turn and become like children. The first thing when we're dealing with sin, we need to literally, like, here's the sin. We're not getting comfortable. We're not getting discouraged. We're turning away. We're just turning from it. we got to turn away, and we got to humble ourselves. Look at verse 4. He says, whoever humbles himself like this child what does that mean? That means I can't do it. I can't do it. You ever see a kid like trying to get their shoes on or their coat, especially as it gets colder here and they have like so much to put on. And if you still have kids in that age where they can't put their clothes on, it's exhausting. You know, you get it all on and they I gotta go to the bathroom, get it all off, get it all on. You see a kid just so frustrated because they can't do it. They can't do it. That's, a, that's what we need to come to God like, I can't do it. I gotta turn to you. We don't get comfortable with our sin. It's no big deal, or like, discour- ah, why am I so tempted? Just we turn away and we humble ourselves, say, "God, I can't do it. I literally can't do it." God wants us to repent and turn. Martin Luther said this: for the Christian, all of life is repentance. Coming to God humbly, like a child, turning from our sin, and saying, "God, I can never be good enough. I can't do it." That's how we become a Christian. That's how we experience His grace and forgiveness it's also how we deal with sin moment by moment. Moment by moment, we're saying, Lord, I'm so tempted. I'm turning. God, I'm so angry. I'm turning, okay? I was coaching flag football because CT's doing some missions thing. It sounds awesome, honestly, what he's doing, but I had to coach for us, for our flag football team. I'm not a flag football coach. I never played football. And it's like, it won't be that big of a deal. It'll be fine. It's just little kids. Well, the other coach, like, took a page from Michigan's playbook and, like, dude had a headset on. He had plays. We we're lining up like we we're playing football, like on the line of scrimmage. If you guys know about flag football, you already know we were doing it wrong. They were running like, a, like some kind of, like, Mighty Ducks flying V zone. I didn't even honestly know the rules till then, but I learned them because we got waxed. Completely waxed. And the guy was extremely, like he was having a bad week, a bad day or a bad life. I don't know which. Because he was screaming at his players. He was screaming at the ref. And in my heart, I was like, Lord, I don't have time for this today. I didn't want to be coaching. I'm feeling, I don't want to deal with this. I felt like turning into him a little bit. Uh, and I had, to, I had to look exactly what Jesus is doing now. When we're feeling like we want to know who's the greatest. And clearly I was not in this situation. I was actually just completely outgunned. I have to look at my own sin first. And I said, Lord, what's making me so upset about this? Well, I don't wanna look stupid. I don't wanna look inadequate. I, I want my kids to be having fun and high-fiving. And I say, like, Lord, I'm so frustrated with this guy, but I gotta look at myself, and what can I control here? So I started, like, high-fiving his players when they, like, smoked us with an awesome play. Dude, good run, man, that was pretty sweet. Yeah, that was, that was good, that was really good. You know what happened? The guy started to soften up towards me a little bit, and he he calmed way down. And it's like, I could have led all my kids to sin by saying like, I'm gonna be mad at this ref, because he's only calling it their way because he's intimidated by him, because he's like 12. (laughs) And I could be mad at this guy who's putting all his significance in a little kid's game. Why does it hurt my feelings so much? Because I'm putting all my significance in a little kid's game too. And I gotta look at my own sin first. I gotta take the log out of my own eye before I can go for a speck. Does that make sense? So we got to turn from our sin and come with our neediness. we got to address the sin in our own hearts first. Repentance and humility. Repenting, some of you guys are Christians, you know this. Repenting is the greatest feeling in the world. You just come and you're like, Lord, I can't do it. He's like, I know. I got you. It's just the joyful feeling of being totally inadequate and totally accepted and loved. Repentance is the best feeling in the world. Do not hold yourself back from turning and humbling yourself. Um, well, that's not all. Jesus is doing so much here, but that's not all he's doing here. Um, this whole teaching starts when the guys are arguing about who's the greatest, and Jesus says, "You want to be great? Turn and be humble like a kid. Admit you can't do anything." And then he tells them, "Deal with your own sin. Why don't all you guys just go ahead, cut off every part of you that causes you to sin?" and cut off every part of you that tempts you to sin. And then go ahead, whoever's left, just tell me uh, who's the greatest here. No one left. There's a sense in which Jesus is like, I want you to radically and ruthlessly eliminate your sin. And there's a sense in which he's saying, good luck. Who are, who are these people arguing about who's the greatest? Remove everything that causes you to sin. No one is worthy. God, what's Jesus saying? None of you is great. And 19, he's going to say, none of you is even good. None of you is even good. How can God welcome us into eternal life when we're not great, we're not good? We can't even cut off our sin. We could never cut off enough sin to be worthy in his presence. Because Jesus never sinned. His hands and feet never moved to do evil, and yet he was cut off for us. His eye never lusted, never tempted him to sin, and yet his body was broken for us. Jesus is the greatest, and yet he became the lowest. Jesus was worthy of all glory, all honor, and yet he took upon us our shame. He was cut off for our sins and for our transgressions. And on the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was cut off so we will never have to be. So we will never have to be. To our culture that believes that people can never change, that there's good people and bad people, and that when we find the bad ones, we just cut them off, and that slips into our thinking in the church. Jesus gives the strongest rebuke. None of you is great. Deal with your own sin first. Come to me humbly. I can help you. It's very hard to really judge somebody and really despise them when you realize you look at your heart and you're like, he's really annoying, but I'm a lot worse than he is. If people knew we're looking at what they're saying and doing, if people could look at what I'm thinking and feeling, I'm a lot worse. Thank you, Jesus, for your mercy. How would our conflicts change if instead of canceling and despising others, we repented and took the log out of our own eye? How would our families change? How would our church change? if we we take Jesus' medicine of repenting moment by moment, turning from our sin, coming to him humbly to do what only he can do. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you so much for everything you're doing in this passage, Lord. You didn't save us so we can get comfortable with sin, and you didn't save us to be discouraged by our temptations, Lord. You saved us to to grow in in your image and your likeness, to be more like you. Help us lock in on our own sin, Lord, and deal with that first. Help us see when something is really bothering us in somebody. Help us check our heart and see why. Help us know, Lord, we need your gospel just as much as anybody, if not more. Would that transform our relationships in our families, in your church? Would we be the humblest, quickest to repent people we know, Lord? Would that time from when we realize we're sinning to when we're repenting at your feet and saying, I need you, become quicker and quicker and quicker, Lord? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.